The point about the quiet invaders is that there is many prominent Austrian immigrants to this country that Americans know very little about. Today on If Passports Could Talk, we talk with Gunter Bischoff. Growing up in the Alps as a child was obviously a big thing that I was at the time not so aware of as I got aware of later when I moved to Louisiana and lived in the swamps of Louisiana. In his life, Gunter Bischoff has carved a transatlantic reputation as a luminary of European and American history. Despite coming from the Austrian Alps, he has also found a home in the humid swamps of Louisiana. Focusing on post-World War II reconstruction, the tensions of the Cold War, and the intricate web of international diplomacy. I was born to Josef and Poldi Bischoff as the third of eight children, so I grew up in a large family. And growing up in a large family is something I remember particularly well. So I remember my hometown, uh, Millau indeed was a very small village uh, with about 900 inhabitants. Today, I think it has about 1,100 inhabitants. Growing up there and knowing everybody, that was a, sort of a defining feature of living in a small town, that everybody knows you and you know everybody. It was one of the principal tourist towns in the region. The Austrian Alps were an idyllic setting for the tradition and change of the 1950s. As the country grappled with post-war realities, high mountain peaks could no longer shield the fact that the world had become much more interconnected. For some, this world beckoned those with open minds to explore and attempt to understand its rich complexities wherever their journey guided them. And in winter times, I usually did a lot of skiing, but when I grew up, we didn't have any ski lifts in the village yet. Uh, so we would uh, walk up the mountain all afternoon and ski down. So it was in a way a very rigorous kind of skiing regime. And I remember very fondly on Sundays, our father walked with us up into the higher regions where we skied to. And at the end of the day, we skied down into the valley. The Alps were sort of a constant in my life. As I say, hiking in the summer, uh, skiing in the winter. I remember one summer I was uh, a, a cowboy where on a high region Alm, it's, as it's called in German, Alpe, Alm. And uh, there we were uh, at the back of this domineering mountain that's domineering the entire valley. It was called Canis Flu, and at the back of the Canis, the Canis Flu still had Edelweiss. So as uh, these uh, cow herds, we uh, picked Edelweiss and sold them to the tourists. You know, at that time, of course, I didn't know the song Edelweiss yet, and I didn't know how important it is uh, for many Americans to have seen Sound of Music and be familiar with Edelweiss. I encountered it uh, walking up on this steep mountain and picking the Edelweiss, which of course you were not allowed to do at the time, but we did it anyway because we could make extra money by selling the Edelweiss to tourists. So I would say the Alps were definitely a defining kind of feature of growing up in this very rugged landscape, very hard in the sense that there was uh, lots of snowfall. And of course, I remember that my father was uh, managing a grocery store in the village. So we had to clean the approaches, uh, the parking lots around the grocery store, which used to be a lot of work because it could snow, say, half a meter of snow, more than a foot of snow a night. Uh, and at that time, there was still plenty of snow. And of course, as kids, we had lots of fun uh, building snowmen. The small population 
populations constituting Austria's secluded alpine villages were frequently visited by travelers drawn from all over the world to the region's uniquely beautiful sights, sounds, and tastes. Tourism was a very important industry in my town. And keep in mind, this is sort of the transition from a village that mainly is a farming village towards a village that now it's a Dienstleistungsgesellschaft, meaning uh, is uh, catering to tourism. Tourists came to Millau to hike, you know, to be in the mountains uh, for the fresh air, to hike in the summer. They came from German cities. And in the wintertime, they also came to ski in a way made the village, if you will, well-to-do in the sense that everybody made money in the tourist economy. You know, a lot of people, if they had extra rooms, they rented out to tourists, they rented them out to tourists. If they built the house, maybe they built an extra floor to rent it out to tourists. So tourists didn't only stay in hotels, but they also stayed in private homes. Now, the tourists that came were mainly Germans and Dutch people and some Swiss people, not really Americans or English people. Now, tourism, I think, was important in my life in the sense that uh, it always gave me a chance to make extra money, which, of course, given the big family, was important to the family. Once I was a student, of course, it allowed me uh, to do things as a student, which otherwise I couldn't have done. But tourism was also important in terms of the liberating experiences that it provided. If you think about it, you know, young men like myself had their first sexual experiences with tourist girls from Germany and Holland. Usually it's called the typical ski instructor experience, that they always, uh, if you will, mess around with, uh, with uh, tourist girls. They didn't mess around, but I had some positive experiences with uh, uh, some German girls. So if you will, it sort of liberated you to think about a larger world, that tourists came to town that had different experiences in their lives, which you learned from big American, uh, big German cities and so forth or people from Amsterdam, from Holland. So it was altogether an education too for a young person growing up in a small village. So I would say overall, I have uh, uh, very happy memories about my childhood in my family and in this village, Millau, in the Prinzerwald. Faith and religion continued to play crucial roles in Austria's villages providing moral guidance, support, and a way to keep in touch with other members of one's community. The Catholic Church, uh, when I grew up, was still very dominant in the village, and everybody at the time was going to church regularly, certainly on Sundays. And as a young boy, I became an altar boy and served uh, as an altar boy until I went away to school. So that was a very important part of my Sundays that you go to church at 10 in the morning, you know, with all the villagers. But as I got older, I joined the village habit of after church going out for a beer with with people that you knew. So that's that's called Frühschoppen in German. It's a very old tradition and it's very common. And I would say it's part of growing up Catholic uh, in Austria. You have to imagine Austria, when I grew up, was 90% Catholic and people still went to church. Today, uh, the figure I hear is only 15% of Austrians still go to church, which means if you go to church in my village or in Vienna or Innsbruck or wherever I go to church, usually you only see old people in those churches. 
village highlights have changed a lot in the sense that the Catholicism is no longer as dominant as it used to be. And Catholicism, of course, at the time also meant a way of living. Your value system was derived from the Catholic Church. Uh, the parents uh, sort of raised you in an authoritarian fashion as the church uh, would have done. So all of that is part of Catholicism in Austria, and it's no longer dominant like it used to be in, in my youth when I grew up. A family and its traditions are often deeply connected to one's sense of self. Values, beliefs, ideals, the influences of our childhoods are inextricably linked to our experiences of adulthood and the feeling of purpose we carry with us throughout. My mother was Leopoldine Bischof Puldi, she was called. And of course, uh, she raised a big family and was a typical housefrau. My mother only had uh, elementary school education, so she didn't have a higher education. So I guess she was always bound to be a housewife. But she was a, a very good and fond, uh, uh, proud woman, being uh, the homemaker in, in the Bishop family, which meant uh, she did a lot of uh, cooking, mending of socks. And cooking meant that the time when I grew up, you didn't really have a lot of uh, riches. We uh, had a very modest lifestyle and our diet was very modest too. So usually my mom would cook what would feed a lot of children, uh, which meant a lot of potatoes and cheese. For example, we didn't grow up with a lot of meat in our, our diet. So in that sense, we didn't have, as today people say, a Mediterranean diet, but uh, a relatively healthy diet. But I would say she was a typical mom for her day and age in the sense that she raised a big family. And, you know, you have to imagine one of the Catholic uh, sideshows was that there was not birth control. So she actually gave birth to 10 children of which eight survived and are still alive and well today. At that time, growing up as a woman in uh, this backward uh, Alpine village too, is that women didn't know birth control. So, uh, you know, uh, that meant they usually would have a lot of children. We had a modest upbringing, and usually older boys would pass clothes on to the younger boys, and it was the same with my sisters. So we didn't have money to buy a lot of clothes. And I mean, if you can imagine that, we never had a, a car in our family, meaning my parents never owned a car. So uh, that's uh, very different from today, too, where every youngster in the village uh, sort of has a car, drives a car. The conclusion of fighting after World War II began a long period of infrastructural and societal reconstruction. Hundreds of thousands of Nazi POWs were placed in American prison camps as their fates were determined. One of those prisoners, Gunter's father, carried those experiences of America with him for a lifetime. My dad obviously grew up very differently from me because when he was young, he grew up in the village too in Melau. Uh, his parents died early, so he was sort of responsible for his younger siblings. But when he was a young man, you know, at the age of 19, he had to, to join the German Wehrmacht because in he was born in 1921. In 1938, Hitler took over Austria, as you know, the so-called Anschluss. So young men like him had to surf. And of course, if they resisted surfing, they would be uh, uh, killed by the Nazis. So nobody 
his age were thinking of resisting. So he served in the German Wehrmacht, uh, was trained, I think, in 1941 and thereafter, and spent most of the war in Finland. In other words, on the very tip of the Eastern Front, he was shooting artillery over towards Murmansk. At the end of the war, when Finland uh, turned, he was brought down and fought on the Western Front against the Americans as they were breaking into Nazi Germany. This would have been in the area of Kaiserslautern. Uh, so he fought in that area and then subsequently indeed was taken prisoner by the Americans. And if you can imagine this, he was lucky enough to be shipped all the way to Colorado Springs. In Colorado Springs, he was brought to Camp Carson, the home of the 10th Mountain Division, and uh, he was lent out, if you will, from the base to farmers in Colorado uh, to work in the fields. Now, he enjoyed that work. Later on in the winter time of 45, 46, he worked in a hospital kitchen in uh, uh, Denver, Colorado. And what he remembers most about that was that the African-American chefs in the kitchen were very kind to him and fed him extra food. So I take this as a very interesting phenomenon of uh, underdogs uh, bonding together, but that's a distinct memory he had. He didn't talk much about his POW uh, existence. Since I researched POWs in World War II in my academic life, I also researched him and found out a few details about him. But I also visited Camp Carson in Colorado Springs and took pictures for him to bring back at one point in time. I would say his existence was defined by the war experience. And keep in mind, he was lucky to return and to start a family. That's why I'm here. So what I remember my father the most uh, was that he was a very hard worker, and if I inherited a good work ethic for my academic life, I would say that is something I inherited from my father because I watched him all of his life working very hard. Change is both exciting and difficult. Maintaining traditions through change allows us to process our new surroundings without feeling as if we have lost ourselves or our roots in the process. Well, what do I still remember from my childhood? I would say what is most dear to me is the dialect, because the dialect, uh, which is hard to understand for anyone ex except Swiss people, as I said, we are close to the Swiss border. So the dialect, I think, is a very defining kind of tradition because it's so unique and so few people understand it. In order to be accepted in such a, a, a small town, you have to speak the local dialect. And I never really dislearned that. And I was very proud of uh, our daughter when she went to school in Beitzau, the next door village. She actually learned the dialect too, and she still speaks it today, and we can speak in the dialect. Now, whenever I went back, people would ask me, Hoi, Moldau? which sort of means as much as, Hoi, are you here, or back here again? And I said, yeah, just a for a little time, just a bit slip. So uh, being part of that village community in a way has grown on me in the sense that I regularly return. I don't really have a lot of friends there anymore, but of course I still have family members. Given that I'm from a large family, half of the family stayed in the valley that is in Mela and surrounding villages and half of us moved away. The English novelist Jane Austen once said, what are men to rocks and mountains? As Gunter returned home to Austria, he carried new American identities and ideas 
that would grow throughout his life. Despite these changes, the mountains of his youth were unmoving and never ceased to call him to their peaks. So whenever I return to Mela, which I try to do once a year at least, uh, I try to climb the mountain, which sort of is part of the of our identity in Melau, the so-called Canis flu, which I already talked about before. And I will climb that mountain, but I find it harder and harder to get up. It's a three and a half hour hike from the village up to the top of the mountain. And nowadays, when I go up with my boys, you know, they are in much better shape and they are half an hour ahead of me. And if I make it up to the cross, meaning to the top of the mountain, panting, uh, I consider myself lucky. You know, I did it last time, probably a couple of years ago. And one habit is that you go up there for sunrise. So that means you would have to leave the village like at two in the morning in order to be up there for five o'clock in the morning when the sun rises. So uh, those kinds of mountain experiences, Bergerfahrungen, you know, uh, I was never a climber in the sense that I was a daredevil going up the bald face of mountains, but I was always a hiker since our dad sort of went hiking with us when we were young, and I always enjoy doing that still when I return to the valley. And interestingly enough, my kids do too. And even though smitten by wanderlust, he occasionally missed the sights, smells, and taste of his youth. For Gunter, two dishes from his childhood home have always stood out from the rest. The cuisine in Austria, as I say, when we grew up was modest. So probably the most defining dish uh, that we have was called Käseknöpfle. And Käseknöpfle are a homemade pasta. And it's sort of a pasta made uh, from scratch uh, by our, uh, you know, uh, chefs. Uh, and it's only delicious with the kind of uh, strong cheese that is uh, common to our area, Bergkäse. And I would say the smell of Bergkäse is still with me. Uh, I can smell that. And whenever I go home, I try to eat Käseknöpfle. And the other very uh, defining thing would be Marillenknödel, which is to say apricot dumplings. So Marillenknödel are only cooked in June and July when there is fresh apricots available. And uh, there is a, a delicious kind of knödel uh, uh, around it. And Marillenknödel is something that I also still enjoy uh, eating whenever I come home. So I would say most defining would be Käseknöpfle because of the strong sense of the cheese that goes into it. So one meal we regularly ate on Saturday evenings would be uh, boiled potatoes. And we would have a homemade cheese with, with it that my father made. It's called Ziegara. And Ziegara is also a very strong smelling kind of homemade cheese. So my wife got used to the taste too, but it was a bit much for her because it was such a strong taste. So I would say cheese is the way it's being made in the Brinkzerwald. By the way, the Brinkzerwald is famous for its cheeses. And also this homemade Ziergere, which probably most people today don't know anymore because nobody knows how to make it anymore. At a young age, Gunter's prowess and potential as an academic was already becoming clear. 
Now, I grew up in a family where higher education was not very common. In my case, it was actually the village priest who approached my parents and said to send this boy to a gymnasium, to a high school, because he is a good learner. Of course, the, the thought in the priest's uh, back, at the priest's back of the mind truly was that I might become a priest too, because I went to a boarding house in Bregenz and attended a public high school. The boarding house was called Marianum. And it was sort of the bishop's kind of uh, house where young people from valleys uh, like my valley would come to get a chance to go to high school. Because you have to imagine, when I grew up, there was no high school in my valley. But no one expected me to go to high school and certainly no one expected me to go to college. But I'm the only one of the eight children who has a, a college, a university education. Many cultures emphasize the importance of leaving home on a quest when one grows old enough. Bregenz may have seemed like a distant journey for young Gunter, but it was only the first step in his life of adventure across the oceans. Leaving my hometown to go to high school was probably the biggest jump in my life. Even though Bregenz was 35 kilometers away, at the time there was still a small railroad, the Bregenzer Waldbahn, which went from Bregenz to Bezau. Now, we were not allowed to come home often, only on the big Catholic holidays, you know, uh, Christmas, Easter, uh, and so forth, were we allowed to come home and see the family. So it was really being cut off from the family at a fairly early age. In my case, it was at the age of 12. And in fourth grade, when I was 13, is uh, sort, so to speak, the last time I remember being really homesick, you know, missing... Uh, Melau and my family and my home, which uh, never would happen again, because I think once I made the first step of leaving my family and my hometown to go away to Bregenz, it was much easier to go for a year to California or later on to go to Innsbruck, uh, where I regularly came home. What's important about that first step is that I, if you will, uh, cut the umbilical cord with my family, even though I was close to them and stayed in touch with them, uh, I started uh, to live you know, in foreign establishments and had to get used to different kind of lifestyles in that sense. Like the song of a siren, the allure of a booming California would have been nearly impossible to ignore. By and large, my image of the United States was shaped by the fact that when I finished high school in Bregenz, I spent a year in California as an American field service student, AFS. And I lived with a family in the East Bay area, which is to say about an hour east of San Francisco, close to Berkeley, close to Oakland, which by American standards was not a big town. It was about 15,000 inhabitants, and it was what you'd call a bedroom community. Many of the people commuted into San Francisco, like my host father, Mr. Kenzie was a geologist and he commuted regularly uh, to the offices of the Chevron company in San Francisco. So the difference was, was vast in the sense that I grew up in a very modest kind of uh, environment and I felt like this middle-class lifestyle in California was, you know, the people were very wealthy and rich and they had everything. Maybe again, if I circle back to the issue of food, to give you an example. So I didn't know any ethnic foods. You know, I, we didn't have those in the valley. So if you can imagine, for the first time in my life, I ate pizza. For the first time in my life, I would eat Mexican food. I would eat Chinese food. 
So all those ethnic foods that are so common to the American middle class, I encountered a lot of things I didn't know. So for example, I never had seen a melon before in my life. So to eat a cantaloupe uh, from the Central Valley in California was uh, incredibly delicious to me. So I encountered not only a lot of new foodstuffs, uh, but uh, an entirely different well-to-do lifestyle. The great state of California would become a massive transition for Gunter. Like many Austrians, he quickly discovered a skill that translated beautifully between the Alps and Lake Tahoe, skiing. I started a ski racing team at the high school. Uh, they had lots of skiers, but nobody knew how to race in between gates. And we would uh, go up to the Lake Tahoe area pretty much every weekend, all winter long in order to uh, learn ski racing and participate in ski races. Uh, this was sort of unusual for me in the sense that many of the kids on the ski racing team had parents that might have cabins up at Lake Tahoe, which meant you had to be pretty wealthy to own a house in Danville and to have a cabin up at Lake Tahoe. But many of the kids at this high school did. And that was sort of uh, news to me that people, you know, uh, could afford uh, a cabin up in the mountains. I would say the big difference between Miller and Danville was that Danville was a much uh, more well-to-do community than Miller was. And I encountered that as, as a young person and enjoyed it greatly. My parents were not very fond of me going to the United States and staying away. Keep in mind at that time, it was hard to communicate with your family. I think throughout the entire year, I only telephoned them once for Christmas. All the other times I wrote letters home and I recently found the letters. It's sort of interesting, you know, experience so to read them today, what I reported on. They didn't like the idea, not because I went away, but because probably my father might still have had, even though he never really let on to that, a sour taste in his mouth about his POW experience. Even though he always insisted, had he been able to, he would have stayed in the United States. Uh, but of course, as a POW, after a year, they were sent home because most of the POWs would have liked to stay in the United States. You know, there was about 400,000 Germans and Austrians in the U.S. Uh, and all of them would have liked to stay. But of course, the United States had millions of soldiers coming home who needed jobs, so they didn't want to have this group of Germans and Austrians. What I remember most about my first weeks is that it was very hot, sort of like it's very hot here. And I've never experienced the kind of heat, uh, I would say it was over 100 degrees, you know, in this East Bay area. So my family took me on a quick vacation and we went from the San Francisco area along Highway 101 down to Santa Barbara. And I had never really been to beaches before. And the beaches of Santa Barbara were sort of uh, very uh, uh, interesting to me in the sense that I had not experienced again. And I remember we went on a fishing trip and caught some sharks out in the Pacific Ocean. And of course, I'd never seen a shark before. While he was falling in love with the West Coast, Gunter witnessed his new American friends deal with the pressure of knowing they could be drafted into the Vietnam War. I was there in 72, 73, which is to say the election campaign between Richard Nixon and George McGovern was going on. And Nixon came to California and many of my classmates were very entranced uh, by Nixon. 
I, however, at the time already must have been a true blood liberal because I went campaigning for George McGovern. But the important thing is in the civics class in San Ramon Valley High School, we regularly discussed uh, politics and the campaign, but my classmates still had lottery numbers, so could be drafted. So for them, Vietnam was a, a personal threat to their personal lives in the sense that they could have been drafted and sent there. Very few were, but you know, my classmates were well-to-do California families and certainly no one wanted to go to Vietnam. So when the peace was arranged by Kissinger uh, and Nixon in in January 1973, that the boys no longer were threatened to be drafted for the Vietnam War. Finally able to return to his education, Gunter enrolled in a Tyrolean university. I was the first one to sort of step outside and go away, first to Bregenz and then eventually to the United States. And I think that sort of created the spirit amongst some of my siblings that they can do it too. So I would argue or I would hope that my brother who worked on Norwegian cruise ships and saw the world on these cruise ships, and I would hope that my positive experience of coming to the United States and being gung-ho about it when I came back would have affected him in the sense that he thought and said, I can do this too. Shortly thereafter, Gunter himself would return to Austria for his own military service. When I got back in the fall of 1973, I had to go into the Austrian army. So that was, a, if you will, a pretty rude awakening that I had to do my eight-month army service. And, you know, that would bring me back to, of course, regimentation, as you would experience in the army. But uh, like every Austrian of my age, I did my military service uh, without really questioning it didn't appeal to me very much. I felt those eight months were like a lost year. In the fall of 1974, I attended the University of Innsbruck. Uh, but there was a little mishap in the sense that I studied economics my first semester. But as I find out, there was too much math and statistics in economics and not enough basics explanations of the economy itself. So I gave that up very quickly and started studying Lehramt English und Geschichte, which is to say I studied English and history to teach high school one day. As Gunter honed his academic passions in Innsbruck, his friends and experiences from the United States beckoned him to return. I would say I thought about the United States all the time, and I swore to myself, I want to go back once more before I start teaching high school, because then I will be a prisoner of my job, I will make money, and I will never make the big step of going away again. So in my college experience, I wanted to go over to the United States once more. In 1976, I traveled with a friend and we traveled for three months on Greyhound buses through the United States. I think we traveled 10,000 miles from New York to Seattle, Vancouver. We obviously stayed over with his family in outside of Cleveland. And then we stayed with my host family uh, outside of San Francisco and we went down to L.A., a very extensive trip around the United States, imbibing the United States from coast to coast. We took a bus all across the country, and I have some very distinct experiences, uh, memories from that time. Say the bus from Chicago to Denver would take 30 hours. 
And of course, you got to know the characters on the buses. Now, who traveled on Greyhound buses? It was mainly European students who got cheap tickets and Americans who didn't like to travel by plane or, or Americans who, were, who couldn't afford plane tickets. So I remember specifically on that trip from Chicago to Denver, 30 hours, there was a, a black person that wanted us to imbibe from what he was drinking. And it was a mixture, I think, of vodka and milk. So he wanted to, us to drink his milk. And we did. So we, we really encountered some true American characters on those buses. Just as Gunter's village priest took notice of his academic ability, enabling him to attend high school in Bregenz, another individual's faith in Gunter provided him the resources to pursue a PhD in the U.S. At the end of my studies, before I did my final exams in Innsbruck and would become a high school teacher in Vorarlberg, which I did for a semester, I applied for a scholarship which was offered in Innsbruck to the University of New Orleans. Uh, I applied and got the scholarship and I came to the United States. The UNO year was very important in the sense that it set me on the course to study American history uh, with uh, very good teachers. I wrote a master's thesis at the end of my year on the relationship between Eisenhower and McCarthy. One of the first people to look at the Eisenhower-McCarthy relationship and one of the first people to look at the Eisenhower files so I wrote an almost 300-page thesis, which sort of was forbidding, you know, it almost was like a book. But I had delved so deeply in this uh, uh, relationship to the matter and, you know, the original documents from the Eisenhower Library. In a way, that strengthened my interest in American history and my advisors then said I should do my PhD in the United States. And uh, Ambrose got me in touch with a friend of his who was an oil wildcatter from Wisconsin. Ambrose had gone to the University of Wisconsin, a friend of his who then financed my travels up uh, to Princeton. And by the way, I also interviewed Eisenhower's brother, Milton Eisenhower, who had been president of Johns Hopkins University. I stayed with him for a few days. So all, all of that was financed by a very generous American who loved history and who wanted to support a young history student at the University of New Orleans, and that al allowed me to write that, that kind of thesis that I wrote. Amidst travel from Central Europe to various cities and universities across the United States, one person in Gunter's adventures stood out from the rest. One experience led to the next. The AFS experience led me to study American studies and that led me to come to the University of New Orleans and that led me to American history, branch out from literature, if you will, and that eventually led me uh, to Harvard. If there was a pivotal moment, I would say, is meeting Melanie and the fact that she also ended up at the Harvard School of Education some of these uh, mentors like Stephen Ambrose and Joel Oxen uh, and the very positive family experience with the Kensey family in California, all of them led to me becoming very interested and fond of this country. And that's the stepping stone from one experience to the next. Just as family connected Gunter to his Austrian identity early in life, his marriage became a pillar of his growing identity as an American. Now, Melanie comes from an unusual family, unusual in the sense that her father supported his girls, there are three girls in the family, 
to get a good education. And if you can imagine this, her oldest sister went to Yale, her younger, uh, older sister went uh, to uh, Harvard, and she went to Princeton. Jimmy Boulay, their father, sold land that he had in order to send his girls to college. Now, that would be unimaginable in Austria that a farmer would sell his land to send his girls to college. My youngest sister, when she wanted to go to college, my father said, oh, no, girls don't need to go to college. They get married anyway. That's how he took her out of the path of higher education. But that was not the case in my wife's family. So she went to Princeton, studied development economics. And after uh, her college years, she actually went with Peace Corps to Paraguay. And I met her when she had finished Peace Corps and her teaching in Honduras. Despite ruining the heat of California when he first arrived in America, Gunter later found himself creating a home in the humid bayous of Louisiana. Not to be forgotten, which I like to tell the Austrians, is the fact that you can live from nature here. That is, when I go fishing with my brother-in-law or when I used to go crabbing with my young son, Alexander, in the bayou, you can catch a lot of crabs and fish. Uh, and I'm not a hunter because I don't really like weapons and don't shoot, but a lot of people here do hunt ducks and deer, and often we get some venison from them. So in that sense, you can really live from nature here, which you can't in Austria, because only wealthy people hunt there. So that's very different. Everybody here, except me, has a boat in their backyard. Everybody that drives, all males drive a truck, except me. In that sense, I'm very un-Cajun, that I am not a macho Cajun who drives a truck and has a big fishing boat in his backyard. I've gotten very fond of the Louisiana bayous. Being a symbol of transatlantic connection himself, Gunter became fascinated with the relationships of his old and new home countries. If there is any project particularly dear to me as a Cold War historian, which is to say post-World War II Austrian-American relations, I would say it's the Marshall Plan. I worked on the Marshall Plan in Austria and altogether I think I've published three books on the Marshall Plan in Austria and that sort of became in a way a life-defining project. But I would say the Marshall Plan more than anything has been a, a subject matter that has defined my scholarly career. The Marshall Plan I knew nothing about when I grew up in Milau. But later on I learned that actually the Marshall Plan did play a role in my village in the sense that it helped start tourism. After the war, the Marshall Plan invested quite a bit of money into modernizing hotels. And I later on would find lists of hotels in Milau that got money through the Marshall Plan in terms of making these hotels more modern with modern toiletries, beds, uh, silverware, and so forth, and that would later on attract the kind of tourists that I would encounter as a, as a young uh, student. So in that sense, the Marshall Plan played an important role in my village too, but I didn't know about that when I grew up. Like Gunter, many Austrians have made meaningful impacts as immigrants to the United States. One book idea I've been working on, and Potsdieper has been uh, generous in supporting me, 
is to write a book about Austrian immigrant biographies to the United States, since I'm one myself. And I think when I, the way I envision the book now is I talk about my experience, like I talked with you about my experience, and weave that into these immigrant biographies. The point about the quiet invaders is that there is many prominent Austrian immigrants to this country that Americans know very little about. People came during that time, but I would like to sort out these quantitative data by showing uh, what kind of lives came here and why people came and how they assimilated. There is an American historian, in fact, he was not a historian, he was a diplomat. His name was Wild, E. Wilder Spalding, who wrote a book about quiet invaders and said, what's notable about Austrians is that they uh, adjusted, assimilated to the country very quickly. They learned the language quickly and they became Americans quickly. Now, I don't think that's the case with all Austrians. It's the case with some Austrians, but I'd like to sort that out. Finding a new home can sometimes feel like a betrayal of one's birthplace, but as Amelia Earhart once said, adventure is worthwhile in itself. So I would have ended up probably as a middle-class uh, uh, burger in Bregenz. I would be retired because I could have retired earlier there. And uh, probably I would be very content with my life there the way I'm content with my life here. But I think the life here in the United States was much more interesting than it would have been had I stayed in Austria. To learn more about Gunter's work, please visit our show notes. And if you would like to hear more stories like this one, please subscribe to If Passports Could Talk to get updates on future episodes.